Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I am your host, Chad, and today with me are three children of the 80s. I'm Bobby. I'm Patrick. And I'm Shane. And today we are reviewing 1982's Death Trap, directed by Sidney Lumet. I think that's how you say it. And starring Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, and Diane Cannon. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Playwrights Anonymous. Are you a step away from a Broadway flop? Are you trying to hide your sexuality? Or want to admit your ideas of plagiarism amongst fellow word merchants? This is PA, not AA, so scotch is allowed. Walk right in, sit right down, Hear long lost stories that never got written. Wordly experienced men and women who have come so close to playwright stardom. The more you drink, the more stories of lifetime sorrow and literature misery you will hear. Oh, I could have been a star. I almost won a Tony Award. Andrew Lloyd Webber liked my story ideas as a musical. Yeah, I had interest from Liza Minnelli. At PA, you can hear it all. Treading the boards has never been so bad. Free membership now includes two shots on arrival. That's alcohol, not bullets to the head. Complete with <laughs> Ernest Hemingway tick of approval. For every one celebrated writer are 16 hacks. Playwrights Anonymous, coming to a sleazy wine bar near you. One rule of engagement, though, don't invite secret lovers to your isolated windmill house as an assistant. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Good one. That was good. Did you just write that one today, Shane? <laughs> no, I had it written, but I just touched it up. That's oh, okay, okay. That's very good. Thanks, man. Well, let's see. I think I'm in charge of the summary, so let's see what I can do here. Just two short years before he was banging the voluptuous Michelle Johnson on the beaches of Rio de Janeiro, Michael Caine portrayed Sidney Bruhl, a Broadway playwright whose list of flops are piling up and ruining ruining his once extraordinary career. Sidney lives in a secluded Long Island home with his voluptuous, weak-hearted wife, Myra, portrayed here by the second most famous L.A. Lakers fan to ever exist, Diane Cannon. And for the record, Shane A., uh, Jack Nicholson is the most famous L.A. Lakers fan to ever exist. <laughs> okay. And uh, Sidney receives a manuscript entitled Death Trap, written by one of his writing workshop students, Clifford Anderson. Sidney feels Death Trap is brilliant and jokingly suggests to Myra that he should murder Clifford, taking control of Death Trap for himself. The skittish Myra isn't 100% sure if her beloved husband is joking about the proposed murder or not. Sidney invites Clifford to their home to discuss Death Trap 
and give his former student his critique. Clifford, brought to the screen by the former mild-mannered newspaper reporter Christopher Reeve, doesn't believe Sidney is being very helpful and has ulterior motives for Death Trap. The edgy Myra tries her best to get Sidney and Clifford to partner up like Magic and Kareem did in the 1980s. That's another L.A. Lakers reference there, Shane. <laughs> um, but as she feared, Sidney decides to murder Cliff and take the manuscript for himself. After Sid and Myra plant the dead body in their rose garden, they are visited by their neighbor, Helga Tindorp, an alleged psychic who has helped solve numerous crimes around the globe. Helga Tindorp, which translates to annoying nosy neighbor, neighbor with a bad accent, believes that violence will occur in the Brule household and warns them about a man in boots. Soon after the visit, a not-so-dead Clifford bursts through the Brule's bedroom window like a rabid Superman, beating down Sidney with a log and chasing after Myra in his muddy work boots until her frail heart gives out, killing her. The new widower, Sidney, slowly makes his way from the bedroom, noticeably unharmed, and calmly discusses the events leading up to Myra's death with Clifford. The two plot their next moves, then lock lips in a passionate kiss that would crush the hearts of comic book movie fans for years to come. It turns out that Sidney and Clifford, like a couple of dirty rotten scoundrels, had been secret lovers for some time and staged the entire death trap meeting to kill off Myra, allowing Sidney to inherit her fortunes. Shortly after Myra's death, Sidney and Clifford begin living and writing together in the Brule household. Sidney, who is suffering from a serious case of writer's block, learns that Clifford actually is writing a stage play called Death Trap, which depicts the genuine events leading up to and including Myra's murder. Very angry with Clifford, Sidney threatens to destroy the only copy of Death Trap that Cliff has drafted, leading the normally docile Cliff to physically threaten Sidney. Clifford and Sidney agree to collaborate in writing Death Trap, but it's evident that these partners only have their own best interests at heart. While discussing a scene from the play, the double-crossing Sidney asks Clifford to arm himself with an axe used as a prop in one of Sidney's plays. Sidney grabs a revolver and attempts to murder Clifford in a well-plotted act of self-defense. However, Sidney quickly learns that Cliff anticipated the act of betrayal and removed the bullets from the gun. Cliff explains that he needed the bullets for the gun he intended to use on Sidney. As thunder roared and lightning flashed outside of the house, Cliff and Sidney engage in a game of cat and mouse, use shackles, crossbows, guns, and knives in an attempt to save their own lives and take control of Death Trap. Meanwhile, Helga, the psychic, races to the Brule household, sensing that Sidney is in grave danger. Upon her arrival, Helga realizes that it is actually... Sydney, who is causing the violence and pain she is sensing. She points Cliff's gun at, and at a knife-wielding Sydney, but is tripped up by a Clifford. Helga's gun drops to the ground and, begin, and she begins struggling in the darkness for it. This, at this point in the film, it transitions to a stage play 
that looks exactly like the Brule's house and features the struggle for the gun between Helga, Clifford, and Sydney. A jam-packed theater is watching the final stages of the struggle that ends with the Clifford character stabbing the Sydney character and both of them dying. The Helga character screams out in joy as she wins this final battle. As the theater audience breaks out in applause, we learn that the real Helga Tindorp is now the author of the wildly successful Broadway play Death Trap. The end. Yeah. Okay, well, that's our summary for Death Trap. Uh, Patrick, do you have the stats for this fine film? <laughs> yeah, I do. Not much to talk about. Uh, released on March 19th, 1982, the same day as Porky's and uh, Chad's <laughs> other favorite film of all time, Victor Victoria. Same month oh, as yes. <laughs> Ought to Be in Pictures <laughs> and Swamp Thing. Film grossed just over $19 million, making it the 43rd highest grossing film of 1982 behind such classics as Six Pack, My Favorite Year, and The Thing, and right in front of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the re-release of Disney's Peter Pan, and Zapped. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 75% critics and 70% audience, and that's basically it. There's not a lot of numbers on wow. uh, Death Trap. Wow, interesting. Well, uh, Death Trap's one of those movies that I know I watched on the HBO loop a million times back in the 80s. And uh, I saw it in bits and pieces, never really saw the whole thing probably until I was in my late teens or maybe in college when I finally got to put all those pieces together and always really enjoyed it. What were your guys' experience with Death Trap? Uh, this is one actually that I had not seen. I'd seen bits and pieces of it through over the years, but I'd never watched the entire movie, which is odd because I've written eight screenplays before, and this is a screenwriter's movie. So it was. I, I felt bad about not knowing about it. I think I saw it at our theater. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, at our video store, and it rented quite often. And I know that people would come back, and they really loved it. But yeah, it's just one of those that just kept slipping away from me, and I just never went back to it until this podcast. And yeah, this is I very very much enjoyed this movie. Much like you, it was an HBO loop film, but I actually would watch it from beginning in. I probably saw <laughs> okay. this. Uh, dozens of times on HBO and I can distinctly remember around that same time frame uh, that uh, it came out on HBO uh, I got Valley Fever which is not really that I didn't have a bad version of it but I was I was court or not court ordered ordered by a doctor (laughs) wow (laughs) you stay away no I was uh, ordered by a doctor to stay home and although I didn't feel bad so I had to stay home every single day from school my schoolwork would be brought to me I'd do it in the morning and then I'd watch television in the afternoon and I'd watch HBO and Death Trap would come on in the afternoon quite a bit and I'd just rewatch it and obviously the 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 draw for me was Christopher Reeve because he was Superman. I knew who he was. Uh, this, uh, you know, I made a joke in the notes about this was my first impressions of homosexuality. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't get that the first. Like that he kissed that man. You know, like what? Well, 
Why? Why? And I remember my mom trying to explain it to me. Well, some men don't like to be with women. Some men like to be with men. And I was like, I couldn't wrap my head around that at the time. I was that young, but it was you know much of the homosexual innuendo that they throw out throughout the film is went way over my head. I didn't get the that those references at all. But I still liked it at the time. I liked the idea of the the play within the play. And the, that that was what captured my interest. And I love the twist that that, you know, that Christopher Reeve is. Well, there's a multiple twist in this film, but that he's mm-hmm. not actually dead, that they faked the murder to kill his wife. And I thought that was really a really interesting twist at the time. As much as I liked this film in the 80s, I haven't seen it since the 80s. So this was the first time <clears throat> in decades that I had seen it. And I really liked it. And I just I just never have purchased it never included in my library until now now it's on my voodoo account but it watching it this time was much like watching a watching it for the first time there were certain things i remember very distinctly but much of the the third act i knew how the film ultimately ended but i couldn't remember a lot of what happened in the third act so it was it was a it was nice to come back to it and have it you know kind of be a complete surprise to me in some regards i understand how about you shane yeah, well, much like Patrick, I, I'd seen it back in the 80s. But then I put it on, I've owned it, I put the DVD on for this podcast, and I couldn't remember anything. I thought I'd seen it, but I couldn't remember anything but the ending. I remember the big reveal at the end. Uh, I don't remember the, the kissing scene, although I have read Michael Caine's uh, biography and he explains all that in detail. It's quite funny how they went about it. Uh Oh, look, this is how inaccurate uh, Rotten Tomatoes is. For a 36-year-old movie, there are 12 reviews, and Patrick said it was 75%. That is so mm-hmm. inaccurate. So take no notice of Rotten Tomatoes, especially with older films. I liked it, but I was like watching a new movie, just like Patrick said. Uh, it's so much of it I hadn't forgot. I had forgotten. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, I'm the same way. I saw it so many times, I... You saw it in pieces, so like the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie all started blending together, and then probably 10 years ago when I rewatched it, it all started making sense, and yeah, I understand, guys. It's one of those things, if you only see pieces, it's, it's a totally different experience. Christopher Reeve, best known for his role as Superman in Superman and Superman 2, which was released just a couple years, I think, before this movie. Um, was trying to get out of that superhero role. So he took this uh, film to sort of avoid being typecast. What was your thoughts on Christopher Reeve in this movie, Patrick? Well, it was an eye-opening experience as a child. I mean, it's I had seen, and uh, once again, another film on the HBO loop somewhere in time. And Christopher Reeve's film career is essentially defined as Superman's one, two, three, and four quest for peace somewhere in time. And this film, I never, I've never even seen Street Smart to this day, which was a oh. film that received Academy Award nominations. That's and, his best role. Yeah, I know, and that's what people say. And I've never seen it to this day. It's it's one I'd still like to see. I just haven't gotten around to it. And you know, I I liked. I liked him very much as Superman because I was a kid and, you know, I liked superheroes and that's what was the attraction of watching this film. Now as an adult, seeing him saying, essentially trying to desperately 
break out of typecasting, not to be stereotyped as, as the just playing Superman all the time or heroic like characters. It's nice to see him in a somewhat villainous role, someone, uh, you know, pushing the boundaries. Now, I read that there was that he tried to keep those boundaries pulled back a little bit. He didn't want to quite go as far as they ultimately went in this film, but I, I think it was good for him in his career. And I think it works really, really well in the same tone of a, another kind of thriller horror slash film of like what lies beneath. I think that film for me works really, really well because I see Harrison Ford as a hero and to have them be the ultimate villain in that film is, is, is really playing against type and using what I expect him to be. And I expect Christopher Reeve, especially in 1982 to be this kind of boy scout Superman type character. Cause that's what he always, even in somewhere in time, he seems to be that character and he, he really is kind of breaking out of that type by um, playing a, and I don't even know, know if I want to call him a villainous role because there's essentially two villains in this role. They're both, they're, they're, they're both murderers. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find a, a completely uh, helpless character in this, but it's, you know, he, he's playing very much, you know, cause his guy shucks kind of mentality that he comes into the film as plays into what audiences would expect him to play from his Superman experience. Yeah. I can't disagree there. How about you, Shane? What was your thoughts on Christopher Reeve? Well, firstly, Patrick, you always seem to bring up Harrison Ford in every podcast. <laughs> that comes back to Harrison Ford. <laughs> Somehow he's in there. Yeah, uh, I like I like Christopher Reeve, but I guess my only opinion on him was like most people as Superman as a kid. Uh, I don't. I remember seeing Street Smart much more vividly than I do this one because it was after it, of course. But I thought he was good in it, but not at likable. I know he was very well liked by the ladies and obviously probably a lot of men too, and with his looks and his appearance and the way he held himself in movies. But in this, against opposite someone as experienced as Michael Caine, they were their chemistry there was awesome. They were they were great. Uh, I really liked Christopher's performance in this. How about you, Bobby? Well, I wasn't really a Christopher Reeve fan growing up because I I always saw him as the the pretty boy Superman character, and I just never really saw him as one of those intelligent leading men type. Persons, I saw him as somebody that was. I remember him in Noises Off, where he was just kind of a buffoon. I saw him Superman. He was more Clark Kent than Superman to me. I just never really got the draw. I totally agree that you guys were saying that he's beautiful to look at, and I can see why why he was famous for a reason. What I didn't realize was that his intelligence. He was Robin Williams's roommate at Juilliard, and you can't tell me that they didn't have some interesting conversations that. I wish I would have been part of just to hear because uh, what a joy to to know that he was uh, that talented, first of all, to be able to go to Juilliard and then to be with one of my all time favorite intelligent actors with Robin. So, yeah, seeing him come out in this role where he is, he starts off, like Patrick said, with the G, uh, G Wiz character and he becomes an animal towards the end. And I, I love the transition, especially up against somebody that's as powerful as Michael Caine as an actor. I thought they played beautifully off of one another, especially with the age difference. I thought they really were well cast opposite one another. And yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody else would have brought the same charm to the character as he did in that time. 
Yeah, and I have to agree with you. That was always my take on Christopher Reeve in this film was he brought that Shucky Dern's ho-hum, good boy next door attitude at the beginning of the film, uh, the Superman-esque uh, charisma, if you will, and the personality. But that moment in the film that he wins me over is when Sidney's getting ready to throw the manuscript in the yeah, fire. Exactly. And he goes, hold it right there, buddy. You know, and it it just the everything turns around. And the lights turn on, and you get to see that second personality. It's he wins me over, and I this is my favorite Christopher Reeve performance ever, just for moments like that. And even later on in the film, when he's they're playing the cat and mouse game, trying to kill each other, basically. I just like seeing him in that evil light as well. So, and yeah, and he does a great job of standing toe to toe with a great actor in Michael Caine in this film. Um, always been a big fan of Michael Caine, even in Jaws Revenge. I thought he was a very good actor. So, uh, what was your takes on Michael Caine in this film, Shane? Oh, I love Michael Caine. Always have. Blame it on Rio. One of the greats. Amen. Funny <laughs> film, and just it, it's everything. I guess I did grow up with him. He was in a lot of movies in the eighties and nineties. Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, of course, is another one yes. that comes to mind. But a lot of serious stuff too. He would do, and he'd mix it up. I love Michael Caine. Noises Off, Bobby mentioned before, uh, another um, Mm -hmm. movie that Michael Caine was in too. It was, he's just a good actor. And and, and in this, I'm surprised I hadn't probably seen it uh, again since because I do revisit a lot of Michael Caine movies. And Jaws Revenge, you're right, he, he does movies just for the money and he admitted that in his biography, but it was still a decent you know, enough Michael Caine performance. He d- does what he does. Yeah. He was in, I think it was in The Swarm or something about killer bees. He still, he, it's, even though the environment around, around him is a bee movie, he's still he's still a highlight. He's still a standout in, in anything he does. And Death Trap is made for an actor like Michael Caine. Yes. And as, as we said, Christopher Reeve and he have awesome chemistry. Diane Cannon, not so much. Uh, I don't think she was bad. We'll get we'll to her. her. We'll yeah, get, we'll get to, get her. to her. But um, I love Michael Caine, and, I, yeah, he's just he's awesome. Um, still going, and even now he pops up in movies, and you know it's gonna he's going to put in 100%. I 100% agree with Shane. I Michael Caine has always brought a class to his characters, even if even the silly slapstick. He still has this upper crust feel about him that is separate from a lot of the of his co-stars in the movies, and I think that he transcends some of his characters. I think that Sidney Brule is a lot closer to what I would picture Michael is his his real personality. I thought that. The way he played certain scenes were I, – I honestly can't think of another actor that could pull it off like he did. The Just looking at his eyes when Diane Cannon's character looks at him and goes, are you serious? You're not really serious. And then he looks at her, and he doesn't do anything but just look at her. And I saw – I saw an evil killer in his eyes, and I thought that that he's an actor, and he's just so, he's so good. Uh, I don't know if he's knighted in Britain, but he has way past deserved it. He's I think just some, he is, sir. I think he is, sir. Michael Caine uh, is he because he's he deserves it. He deserved it 
two decades ago. The guy has put up such a filmography. Uh, it's He's just a joy to watch. And yeah, I, I think that this character is somebody that had anybody else played it, I don't know if it would have been as as beautiful a uh, performance as he pulled out of it. This is this is special to me. Well, I agree with Bobby that uh, there's something about Michael Caine that makes me feel comfortable in the film, with the exception of one film. But <laughs> that he, he, I like Michael Caine as an actor. He, I think he always brings an A-game to any one of his performances. And you're talking about a guy that in the 80s was so prolific, doing so many movies, and some of them just for money, like Jaws the Revenge. But he made you, he always made me feel comfortable seeing it. Now, that being said, this would have been probably the first film I saw him in that I can recall. Maybe, and there might have been something else out of his earlier career. Ed, that Educating I, Rita? No, I didn't see that until the 90s. That came much later for oh. me. It was not one. Th- uh, Blame It on Rio would have been one of the first ones because I saw that at a drive-in and that film made an impact <laughs> on me. <laughs> but, I, and I too, it's like you guys talk about how much he's really good and that's a, and that's a really entertaining film. I really love that film. Like, and it's, it's everybody looks at it as just kind of a, a sex film and I'm like, no, it's oh, no. actually a really funny film. I mean, it's got, it's, it's a nice comic romp where you, you have a lot of good performances from him and Joseph Bologna and, and, and Michelle Johnson and Michelle Johnson and Michelle Johnson. And there was a couple things <laughs> about Demi her. Uh, Demi Moore was there, but, you know, she was like in the background. Uh, but because <laughs> she was behind, standing behind Michelle Johnson. But it was, you know, there was there, you know, he's really good in that film. And he, he could cross genres so, so easily. And I feel very comfortable with him in films today. Like, I enjoy seeing him in, I saw him in the, seeing him play Alfred in the Dark Knight films, seeing him in um, the Now You See Me, Now You Don't films. I, I like him in yeah. those roles, that he's, he's really good at it. And he can play, he can play comedy, he can play, he, he can play drama. He's been in some action films. The one film of his entire career that I cannot stand, I can absolutely not stand. <laughs> oh, no. Is on deadly ground with Steven Seagal. That was just like it's an atrocious Uh, performance, and it's just so like snidely whiplash, like evil villainy. That and I and I wonder, you know, I hate uh, Steven Seagal so and his films generally, so I like to blame him for it. But it literally, like, I thought that was the end of the Michael Crane film career at that point in time after he did that film because I don't remember him making a movie for a few years after that. He just disappeared. But doesn't Michael Caine – this is why I think he was so perfect for this role is that he's one of the very, very rare actors that he has played so many good guys and he has played so many bad guys that when he shows up on screen, you literally don't know which person to cheer for, whether he's going to be the good guy or the bad guy. And this role specifically, he has to walk that tight that tightrope between is he a sympathetic character or is he literally the 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 antagonist through the entire thing i don't know he's just he's excellent well to echo what you just said bobby how this how he didn't win an award for this role is beyond me because he does everything in this movie he's the heel he's the hero he's comedy relief he's serious i mean he does it all in this movie, and he does it all so well that it's great. And I still think this is a this is one performance that was very seriously overlooked by every awards giving everybody. I can't. 
I mean, he should have won a Golden Globe. He should have won an Academy Award for this. I just think this was a great performance by a great actor who, like you guys said, he had a large body of work, but I think this one role is all-encompassing, and he should have been recognized for it. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. The one person who was nominated for an award in this movie (laughs) was Diane Cannon. She was nominated for a Razzie Award. How did she not win? (laughs) I don't understand how. Um, Please, um, Patrick, let me know your thoughts on Diane Cannon in this movie. I'm interested. I I have never understood the mystery that is Diane Cannon. And uh, that other than the physical attractiveness of her that I've never understood uh, because she seems to be she seems to have no range. She seems to play a similar character in every single film. She's screamy. Throughout the film, uh, similar to Kate Capshaw in the Temple of Doom, that just it just grates on me. She's just that's all she's there for, and you know, thankfully she's gone within about a third of the film, and that's that's at least a relief. <laughs> but you know, I, I looked up her film career for the research of this film, and I'm like, well, I've only seen a few of her films, thankfully. And, but I was shocked to see that she's been nominated for an Academy Award three times. Yep. Yeah. And I'm going, how is that possible? And then I found out why is, you know, she did like, there was a short film that she produced. She's a supporting actress. And so it hasn't always been for, it has not been for acting in that or always been for acting. And it's never been in the lead category. It's, it's always been. And in the supporting categories, you can get anything can happen. Like fucking Miss Marissa Tomei won for my cousin Vinny. So there, there you go with that. <laughs> You know, it's, anybody can win an Academy Award as a supporting actor or actress. So, uh, but no, she's not. She's <laughs> annoying in this film, but I find her just as annoying in almost every other film I've seen her in. Uh, granted, physically beautiful in in every regard, but but not talented. Shane, will let you speak for the entire island of Australia and let us know what uh, you all think about Diane Cannon. Well, she was in Kangaroo Jack. So enough said. My, yeah, my point. My point exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> she, uh, she was also in Heaven Can Wait, and I liked that. Uh, I didn't realize she'd been nominated for Oscars. Yeah, I, I don't. I, she really annoyed the the um, tripe out of me in this. She was screaming so much and insignificant. Could have been a bit a bigger role. She could have had more to do than tucking Michael Caine into bed and and screaming all the time. You know. Uh, making eyes at Christopher Reeve, and I don't know. I didn't like her at all very much. Uh, it was a two-man show. Diane Cannon. Well, we haven't got to the Navy yet, but Diane Cannon was just a piece of furniture. <laughs> all right, save her, Bobby. Come on. I won't. She's uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I I felt exactly the same way as the guys. I. I've never understood her draw other than her physical attractiveness. Obviously, she's a beautiful lady, and she's built an entire life on the fact that she was married to Cary Grant. It doesn't matter anything else. In uh, She's always going to get some sort of, of uh, positive treatment in Hollywood for some odd reason. 
I, I agree with Shane. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, to be honest, is probably my only other movie that I've ever seen her in that I halfway enjoyed the movie. And she was exactly the same character in this as she is in Heaven Can Wait. There is no difference between the two of them. Even the screams at the same are in the same locations. But the thing that, that really got me was – and this is why I, I actually took notes on this specific – uh, movie, which was the word darling. She uses the word darling, and, and th- I started to wonder, is there something wrong with the script? Because, again, <laughs> I hadn't seen this for so long, and, and I'd only seen it in pieces, but I had never really studied the beginning. I watched the beginning twice in this movie for this podcast, and the first and the reason was the word darling is used 28 times by 12.44, in, at which point she actually uh, – 12 minutes and 44 seconds into the screen play at which point she actually says my darling darling uh, i wanted to know if that was in the script or if, the, if it was her she also says it 11 more times by the time that uh, michael calls clifford or michael's character calls um christopher reeve at 17 minutes and 35 seconds so that's 39 darlings in the first 17 minutes of the movie and to me that shows the the lack of quality in an actress if she can't call a character by name if she can't act beyond a a pat answer it, it to me it shows exactly what kind of of persona she brings to a role and to be honest i'm th- i wish she would have died in the first 15 minutes and taken all her darlings with her <laughs> at least because this is this movie is not about her she's such a i think another actress any other actress would have been uh, equally effective or more effective and wouldn't have just been uh, uh, like shane said a piece of furniture she was only pretty to look at and nothing more and when she died the story got better yeah i can't disagree with you gentlemen there I, to me she's just a pretty face uh she must have known somebody to get this role i don't know who it was but uh she does nothing but her little scream is a little bit interesting for her sensitivity oh i have uh, the police coming after me here real quick i gotta let the sirens apparently, get by apparently big diane cannon fans in indiana there uh, yes. <laughs> huge they don't want me to talk bad about her Yep, so uh, uh, my thoughts on her was, other than her scream and her skittish behavior that sort of, I guess, was supposed to fit this role, it was a joke of a performance on her part. Um, uh, When I was watching it with my girlfriend, she asked me if uh, we were supposed to take this role seriously or not, or this performance seriously or not, and I go, I guess you're supposed to, but uh, if you're looking at it from a comedic point of view, she hit the nail on the head. That's about it. Well, the last character we're going to talk about briefly is, oh, what? I can never say her damn name. Myra. Helga. Helga. Helga Tindorp, the annoying neighbor or psychic neighbor uh, who I always thought was the weak point of this film, but that's just my take. What do you guys think of Helga? Well, when the neighbor arrives, it annoyed the hell out of me. She sucks. I couldn't understand a word she was saying. Poor Helga, when she spoke, I was like, is my something wrong with my TV? I just, I don't know, could have been the heavy accent, but I had to rewind it a few times to try and pick up what she was saying. I couldn't work her out what she was supposed to be. Obviously, it all comes in full circle at the end, but it was, it was more annoying than Diane Cannon, let me say that, to me anyway. 
I, I don't find her more annoying than Diane Cannon. Diane Cannon is the most annoying character and the one I most like to see die in the film. But she is annoying. <laughs> I'm not going to dispute that. But, I mean, she's essentially the crux of the film. That's how it gets to its ending, and that's one of the twists in it. Uh, but it, it's scenery chewing by the actress. You know, it's the, the accent is played so over the top. Everything about the character is played so over the top. The, the subtleness of both Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine when it comes to the female characters is that they are just like... Uh, I, I don't know. They're just uh, cartoon characters is, is essentially what they are, where the I, I, I like the nuances of Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve and her trying to, you know, is, is she that smart? Is she just stumbling into things? You know, I, I never even at the end of the film, although she comes out on top, assuming because she survives, is she really know that she's in that much danger or is she? You know, she just stumbled into it and barely got out by the skin of her teeth. I don't know what I'm supposed to take from that because either she's the, that intelligent or she's that stupid. And I, I watching it this time, I kept I got the impressions like, yeah, she's that stupid, you know, because she, she's mm-hmm. talking to the murder and has, you know, and, and I don't know what they're trying, you know, we're trying to imply, you know, when I think psychic, I think hack, I think con artist, I think people, <laughs> but. She is predicting things that do happen later in the film. And so that was part that was an aspect of like, you know, are you trying to say that she's not all these things? But, you know, no one seems to take her seriously throughout the entire film. And thus, I don't think the audience is supposed to take her seriously. How about you, Bobby? Do you take Helga seriously? Uh, The actress and her performance? No, Uh, I I agree. I, I will echo everything that Patrick just said in that she wasn't the most annoying character. Myra by far the Diane Cannon character was, but what I saw with Helga was a little different in that I'm, I'm taking this movie as a script on the whole. And I thought that because they played so well into the play within a play script within a script, and they kept referring back to certain parts of the story that we're going to see eventually later on, they foreshadowed beautifully. I thought I, I saw Helga as a a necessary plot point that needed to move the story forward. And they and what she was doing every time she'd come in, she would drop as as horrible her as her accent. And honestly, when she was on, to be honest, you should probably have the subtitles on just so you know what's going on. Yeah. But but she would move the story and she would say i am you know i see a murder i see darkness here i see a knife i see a woman putting the knife into a man i mean she was revealing so much of what we're going to see eventually that i i dropped the actress and went straight for the character and i thought the character was in this was necessary uh i thought she was uh, at the end i liked I liked the end because, again, you guys have all seen the movie. I hadn't, uh, and so the end was a surprise, and I thought that it was it was terrific that there was a survivor and that it wasn't one of the main people you would expect. So, yeah, I, I love the character. I didn't like the performance in any way. I thought that the lady, especially when I find out that it was a, a very fake accent and how – had it have been somebody that actually was from Scandinavia or, or wherever she was supposed to be from, uh, I think they would have probably had a little bit better performance. But I, yeah, she her character was was completely needed for our story. 
and I, I enjoyed it when she was on. I, I enjoyed her speeches when she was on, regardless of her of her delivery. I enjoyed knowing what was coming down the road because I once I realized what was happening on screen, it made me pay attention to the details. Well, one of the most uh, controversial scenes in the movie is something Patrick brought up a little bit ago. Uh, was a controversial gay kiss scene between Clifford and Sydney. And this kiss scene was not actually in uh, Ira Levin's source uh, play, Death Trap, as uh, Patrick mentioned earlier. And it was just something that they put into this movie. Now, apparently test audiences hated this scene. People were screaming left and right that they despised all this happening, especially with Superman involved. And... Patrick mentioned this was his first experience with homosexuality. Can you please enlighten us? Uh, go forward, Patrick, and let us know what your full thoughts on this uh, scene was. Well, I would love to say it was shocking to me, but I was mm-hmm. I, mean, I was around ten or eleven years old, so I, I kind of just rolled with it. It's just not homosexuality, and not it was not pervasive in society, at least at that point in time, at least in Tucson, Arizona. And it was not something that I'd ever been exposed to on television because you definitely wouldn't get away from this on television. In fact, they actually edited a different version of that scene when this was broadcast on television where he merely caresses his face and doesn't actually kiss Michael Caine. So, it, you know, the 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 idea in you know, my first exposure to homosexuality was not like, oh, this was my first homosexual experience. It was more along the lines of, you know, I'd never been I'd never seen anything like this before and I didn't understand it. And I remember my mother having to dis you know, explain it to me when I said Superman kissed that man, you know, like, you know, well, that's because he's Superman boy. So there you go. Um, but it, it just you know, it it didn't bother me. It didn't disturb me. It just caused me to question, and and that that started to you know. Although I'm 1982, 83 area probably came on HBO in '83. Is you know, I'm I'm still in elementary school. I'm not even to junior high yet. And by junior high, I have a concept of what homosexuality is. But it was it was just very rare to see that in a film, a film that I would have access to. Obviously there's many films that came out prior to this, that it was in. I just hadn't seen them yet, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and a lot of them are R rated for, and, and it's an element of, are they R rated because of the homosexuality? This film, when it first went in for rating was rated R and they appealed it and got the PG. And this is before PG 13 too. So, you know, and I kind of wonder looking at it now, I don't really see anything that objectionable that I don't think a PG is appropriate, but I kind of wonder at the time if that's why it got the R rating at first was because of that was considered too shocking. And there's been many things written about it that it it cost them box office, possibly cost them $10 million at the box office because of that, mm-hmm. that audiences, uh, you know. Um, you know, people were just so homophobic in 1982 that they didn't want to see that. They didn't want to see Superman do that. You know, that 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 was just too, too a bridge too far for them. Using another Michael Caine film reference, but uh, it's <laughs> it, it's you know it's it's weird in this day that I don't think the audience would blink an eye at it. But in 1982, it was difficult for someone to see, or a lot well, of people as, to see. Yeah, as I said uh, earlier, I really watched this movie when I was younger in bits and pieces. And for whatever reason, 
I must have missed this scene because when I watched this when I was in my early 20s, I'm sitting there watching it. I'm like, yep, this is the death trap I know. This is death trap I loved. Then all of a sudden, Sydney walks down the stairs. He walks right up the cliff, and they talk about you need to go take a shower and crawl into bed, and then they kiss. And I'm like, where did this come from? I did not remember seeing this at all as a kid. I must have missed that segment or it just blanked it out of my mind entirely. I just didn't remember it at all. And I'm like, well, hell, this makes actually makes the story a lot better because I think it leads into the duplicity of who Sydney is and makes the character expanded out a little bit more. And especially when he's talking to his attorney, I believe is who the character is. And he sort of hints that, Cliff may be gay and doesn't want anybody to know about it and yada, yada, yada. I think it sort of helps make the script in a lot more defined. Uh, what's your take on this shocking scene, Bobby? Well, <laughs> I, I hadn't seen it so until this podcast. So to me, it came and went. It was not at all. It was a blip as far as that goes. I was looking at character development and, and the need for to that you have two men that had whatever feelings they had going for them. I, I thought that it was just a uh, something that was part of the story, but it was nothing to bat an eye at. Uh, and, and that's again, that's year 2018. Yeah. It's not it's not back in 1982. And when you guys mentioned 1982, the the pulse of the country, another movie that came out at the exact same year that had a very similar uh, or much more uh, gay overtones was the movie Personal Best. I don't know if you remember that about the, the two female athletes with Mariel Hemingway. Yep. That, and that movie, which I thought was a very good movie also, that one caught a lot of flack over the fact you had two lesbians. Um, I mean, having a gay character in any way, especially a gay relationship on screen is going, has gone all the way back to Pandora's box when that was back in 1926. So, I mean, it's always been taboo as far as Hollywood has been concerned involving Superman in a, to be honest, a a pretty tame kiss. I know that it was the time, you know, at the time it was it was outrageous, but it wasn't that outrageous. And I think that the talk of it today, if that is what people are remembering about this movie, that it's about homosexuals, to me is a, a crying shame because this movie has is so much beyond that and, and so brilliant and and totally needs to be seen by people that care anything about real story and real writing i i think people need to get past it especially today and just forget it and move on these are these are normal people in normal circumstances and the kiss itself oh my goodness it was that was a nothing as far as i was concerned well apparently before the cameras started rolling they agreed with each other no tongues and (laughs) They said that to each other, no tongues, and they um, they had they were on the terps before they did the scene, which means they had a few drinks before they did the scene. I have no recollection of it, and it's the thing that most people talk about when they talk about this movie. I mean, I didn't have a recollection of pretty much the whole film, but this is a scene that you would think would have either stuck in my memory or if they'd, you'd see clips of over the years of highlights of movies or something, but I have no recollection. 
But when they do it, it's amazing because it's a quick scene and it's not that passionate really. But then Michael Caine makes a phone call and this is all uncut. It's like one big long uncut scene and he makes his phone call and he's crying on the phone call to to fake to, to the false people on the other end. And then after he hangs up, he stops crying. It's a showcase for Michael Caine. It, yes. It really is. And it was a great scene, and it, it deserves to be mentioned, but it's not that significant. It would have been for its time, I, I'm sure. And I, I do remember personal best. But my first experience with homosexuality in movies was probably the Rocky Horror Pictures show. Uh, um, oh, that's yeah. probably the earliest I can remember, and that would have been on TV. And Star Wars, of course, R2-D2 and C-3PO. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you Aussies, you're funny. <laughs> okay, well, the I always said the uh, other character in this movie that is rarely talked about in general, but if you read any reviews, this uh, major character is talked about all over the place. And that is the script itself for uh, Death Trap. Everybody who reviews this or writes a review seems to think this is one of the greatest scripts ever written. However, it didn't win any awards or anything. I was interested in getting your guys' take on this script, which I think is one of the best I've ever seen put up on the big screen. What's your take, Shane? It's at its best when it's Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine on their own. I think they're... Their words and everything. I don't know how much ad-libbing is here, because if it is, it's very good. You don't notice it. I think it might have been just to the screenplay. It's brilliant. I really like the writing. Uh, and Sidney Lumet, he's a, he's a good director, solid director. And the way, the way it was filmed helps the screenplay, because there's a lot of long, long, smooth shots and tracking shots around the room. They don't cut much. There's a Polish cinematographer who, who made it. He also made Nuts another stage play that was made into a film, Barbara Streisand. So that helps the screenplay, I think, the way it was filmed, and the, the actors have got everything down pat. Yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of what Shane said, is that it's a screenplay based off a play, it, but the film feels like a play to me. I mean, it feels like I'm literally seeing something mm-hmm. on the stage, primarily because it's a, a one-set piece. There's a couple of scenes outside uh, early scenes in New York, but mainly it's in that living room and bedroom and the study of that, uh, the, the windmill house and the, you know, you could see almost the stage action or the stage direction in a screenplay for, for it. And I think that's one of the strengths of this film. Unfortunately, I do think it's hampered by two poor performances from the female characters, but I, I agree with Shane that it, when Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve are just delivering dialogue, and this is a delivering dialogue film. I mean, there's yeah. very little to it, and yet it still keeps you fascinated, still keeps you interested in what's going on. And going off the screenplay aspect of it, the Sidney Lumet, I, like I said, I had not watched this since the 1980s, so I was really paying attention to a lot of the visualization of the film, and I was really appreciative of the long tracking shots that they did, that they do a lot of one takes where the camera's just following the characters around the room as they're giving their dialogue. It really get, creates that sense of you're watching, a pl- almost like watching a play, is that it's not broken up by multiple cuts, and it's not bre- broken up by jumping from Michael Caine across the room to Chris 
Christopher Reeve. You'll see the camera will follow Christopher Reeve around the room as he's moving and talking. And that makes the, the, at least the, the scene much more interesting is if he was standing still and he's delivering the dialogue, it's, it's somewhat boring. It's routine. They give this film life by having the character gesture and walk around the room and having the camera follow him around the room at the same time. It just, it, it, I, it was really very, very interesting that this could have been done very, very poorly, very, very uninteresting. And yet the choices that uh, Sidney Lamette had taken with the, the director of photography, the cinematographer really did something to really breathe some life into something that audiences may not have accepted because it's just dialogue heavy. Well, I I will absolutely agree with what both Shane and Patrick said just now. In that this is this is something that I've I've read hundreds of screenplays as homework. My screenwriting teacher would always have us go home and read a couple screenplays a week uh, just to get the feel for not only the format, but she would only recommend the good screenplays, which is what a good teacher would do. And she never mentioned this one because this one happened to be a Broadway play that was translated into a Hollywood screenplay. And there were changes taken. And I don't necessarily think that the gay take on it was a positive. And I think that alone takes away from this play because I agree with what Patrick was saying. And I, I noticed it immediately when I watched Michael Caine on the phone uh, talking to the Clifford, the Christopher Reeve character saying, Hey, you know, come on up, you know, I'm going to be, I'll pick you up at the train station. And it was one long tracking shot of the tracking was him spinning and the room around him was, was moving. And I was completely transfixed by what he was talking about. And I, there have been a lot of screenplays that have been written that they were all green lighted for a, because it was a special screenplay that have been ruined by uh, performances. Uh, one case in particular was Nurse Betty was an amazing screenplay that was killed as a story or as as a movie. It was just terrible. But this movie, you have two tour de force performances from two extremely talented actors, women aside, who were pretty much more or less throwaway actresses, but they those characters were not nearly as important. You needed Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve to circle around with weapons drawn, never knowing which was empty, which chamber was empty, never knowing who was going to have the upper hand through the entire movie. And I didn't care about anybody but those two. And to me, this screenplay is... Or, or the Broadway play, however you want to look at it, but the script itself, I think it, this is this is in the top ten scripts that I have ever seen. I mean, that I've on screen that it actually turned into something that is so memorable that I I see this as a almost a a book, the most enjoyable book I could ever see on screen. It's just so well done, and the show of genius to me is when a script will literally take its own story and tell you the story that you're about to see, and they do it in such a an, an ingenious mystical way that you literally even though you know what's coming you're waiting for it to show up and you they they say so many times well this is what's going to happen that you know i i see death coming and you just don't know where it's coming from but you know it's coming and to me that it it intrigues me it makes me feel intelligent that i'm part of the story and i thought that it, it could not have been any better 
It, it deserved an Oscar for the script against anything out there in 1982. Well, I definitely agree with that statement. As a professional writer, what do you think, Shane? The, the screenplay is fantastic. I mean, it's a forgotten gem, Death Trap. Yep. And Michael Caine yep. was also in Sleuth. And in many ways, it's similar to this, both the original and remake. Uh, Death Trap's not a movie that people talk about. And if they do, like we said, we they talk about the, the kissing scene more than anything else and they shouldn't it it does deserve some kind of recognition in the awards department when it comes to its its screenplay and it's helped by its actors except i was lost in translation whenever helga comes into the scene so i I missed i literally missed some of the script but not enough to not like the film Uh it was terrible man i didn't even realize you were saying that it was a fake accent i mean yeah come on she ruins the movie almost. Yeah, she's definitely the <laughs> definitely is the one of the two naturally low points in this movie, and it's sad because Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve are like award winning performances in this movie, and those two performances from Helga's character and Myra's character definitely don't help the movie overall. But it is a great, great movie. Uh, I've got a couple of things, Chad, I want to mention that we haven't sure. mentioned yet. Uh, I love the poster. I love the main poster. There was a couple of them, but the Rubik's Cube Igsigniga yeah. one was great. I, I really like that, and I always remember the, the, the cover of the VHS, and and now on my, blue, on my DVD, I, I think that's a great design. And they must have had to get the, the rights to use it because that's in the prime of Rubik's Cube, obviously. Uh, I like the trumpet music at the start by Johnny Mandel. And being a writer myself, I love the opening credits. They're all like typewriter style. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Um, the open when this, the first half an hour of this movie is brilliant. There's the opening scene where uh, Michael Caine walks in and Diane Cannon's on the lounge, and they talk yes. about what has just happened, uh, the film, and they're waiting for the phone call and everything else. That's an uncut monologue, and it, yeah. I can't don't know how many minutes it goes for. But it is we discussed the the the, uh, edit, the editing wasn't they didn't do much editing, and this is like this opening scene. It sets the scene, and I wish it was more more like this opening half an hour of the movie until the neighbour appears. And finally, they're in a house that I really thought was cool. We didn't see it much. We saw the outside grounds a couple of times. It was an old windmill house, mm-hmm. but. When the attorney, the attorney was there, said, "Hey, sat the attorney, the, the lawyer." He, um, they they walk outside together, and it's a windy. All the trees are blowing and everything, but the windmill's not stationary. It's not moving. Yeah. So I couldn't figure that one out. I thought windmills worked in wind. That's why they were there. Yeah, that's probably why it's a house and it's not pumping water or energy or anything like that. It's all decoration. And, Bobby, if you like this movie and the screenplay so much, watch Clue from the 80s or Murder by Death oh, from the 70s. I have, I, I've seen both, and you're yeah. right, and they're, they're exactly similar to exact, – I, I really enjoy the writing of it. And, and to be honest, I save scripts specifically that are – that have special scenes in it. This is one – I want to find this script so that I can uh, read it word for word because i this is where i think we miss a lot in the translation from an actor and we rely on a professional 
person to make something special. And in Michael and Christopher's case, they achieved greatness, in my opinion. The ladies took away from uh, what was a brilliant script. But the last thing I was going to mention that uh, came up was the set itself. You guys mentioned it, the outside and the inside. What I thought about this, and the reason I think this is such a brilliant script and a, a brilliant set, whoever the set decorator was, was a genius because the weaponry that they have in the background, they have every weapon that you could possibly think to use in a story up on the up on the wall. You're going to see it all come off that wall to be used in the story. And to me, when you're foreshadowing so much and you're actually giving graphics ahead of time and saying, OK, well, there's there's not just one gun but two guns hey there's a mace sitting on hey I, what why why don't uh, or what's the point of having a mace if you can't use it i mean he's got those interspersed within the script as well as the hey pick up that axe no hold it how does it feel oh not comfortable this way oh flip it over to the other side how does it feel oh not comfortable this way then he throws it sideways and spins it so he he's very comfortable with an axe i mean things like that i think are just priceless that are are forgotten and honestly this movie here i wish i could watch it another time for the first time it's just that special to me so yeah the set is something that's just amazing it kind of reminds me of the noises offset uh to to put apples to apples because both of those are broadway hits that were turned into plays or, or rather screenplays and i think that they both come off very similar they're both extremely enjoyable films and using very limited resources as a background but done ingeniously they are i like i like noises off that's another Michael Caine, not classic, but great film. Yeah, I thought I, saw, I thought Michael Caine looked very comfortable in his paisley shave coat. That looked very, <laughs> very nice. And, and and he even has a cigar in his mouth at one point. It didn't look lit. <laughs> it looked looked like it had been lit. I don't know if you noticed that, but there was no smoke coming from it. Outside when they were on the the deck. Yeah. Yeah, it was different. And there's a little scene near the start again where there's the critics on the TV talking about his play. You don't see that anymore. You know, I, I love it because I am a film critic. And, you, and that were the theatre critics going through what they liked about it and not liked about it, talking heads basically. But you don't see that as well executed anymore, I don't think. Were you envisioning yourself on that television screen? Oh, mate, I could I could do as good as they did. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm pretty sure I know how everybody's going to respond, but hey, let's go around the table and throw some final comments out and see if this stands the test of time. How about you, Patrick? I'll let you go first. Uh, I loved this when I was a kid. Uh, even the homosexual element didn't bother me in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't bother me now. I think it's actually... Uh, probably more acceptable to audiences. I do believe it stands the test of time. This is one I wouldn't mind a remake of because I still think it, it hasn't been perfected. It's still really good, but you could do so much more with some really talented actors and actresses. Not that Michael Caine and Christopher Reed didn't do a good job, but that you could capture 
what was on the play because by all regards uh, the, what I've read the play was phenomenal although it didn't win awards everybody loved it was uh, for a long time was the longest running play on Broadway and I think it's it, it does really really it would it could be translated to film really really well not like a huge blockbuster hit but something that could be done and be a, a mild hit and, and capture it and kind of re- bring it back for the first time in a long time but yeah I definitely love it I think it absolutely stays stays there absolutely um (laughs) shit Uh, too many many podcasts it absolutely uh stands the test of time and i would recommend it for anybody who hasn't seen it i'm actually kind of surprised that bobby had never seen it well bobby go ahead and give us your thoughts well that was by uh accident because had i and people had recommended this to me over the over the years, and I remember starting it a couple times, and I was just in the wrong place when I started it, and I would just turn it off. And every once in a while, I would come on or I'd come across it on TV, and I go, oh, "Okay, I remember that," and yeah, it, it looked good. And then I just changed the channel, so it wasn't something. And, and I'm I'm not ashamed of that. It was just so many other things to see and and do. But seeing it this time again for the first time is something that I do wish. To be honest with you, anybody listening to this podcast, I feel bad that we've given so many – we've given the end away. But to me, this is one that deserves a watch. I'm in 100% agreement with Patrick. I would love to see a remake of this with with passionate, talented people in all the main four characters in the movie. I think that this could be something that – and if it was done correctly today, I think that – the homosexuality take on it that it's known for would not even be brought up. I think what you would see is an extremely talented script with a good group of people that are, that are just making magic on screen. And I think people would revisit this and they would take it for what it is, which is a work of art rather than a watching Superman kiss another man. I think that's a shame that our society was that way back then. I'm, the fact that it's still talked about today is ridiculous. I think we just saw an amazing, beautiful movie, one of the best scripts I've ever seen or and I haven't read, but I'm I'm intending fully to read it. And I think this is it stands the test of time more than most movies from that era. Give us your thoughts, Shane. Eh? Oh, it's a terrific movie. It was like watching a new movie to me. Like I said, I had very little memory of it from when I had seen it, but I know I have seen it. It was coming back to me through Patches watching it. And Patrick only wants it remade so Harrison Ford can be in it, I'd say. <laughs> Makes sense. As Helga. I, 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 like, uh, I like Harrison Ford, but I understand his wheelhouse does not include being able to play this role, so I, I do not see him in it. But I can see, I mean, some really good, talented actors playing it. I, I mean, I... Yeah, uh, you know, I don't even see Michael Caine beyond. Uh, there's no reason why that character can't be an older character than what he's p- portrayed in the film. You know, it. Yeah. In fact, the cardiac, the uh, the wife with the uh, heart problem makes it more plausible if she's a little bit older of a character. Like Diane Cannon, really? I mean, really? Did the plastic surgery <laughs> cause problems to her heart? I mean, was that what was really wrong there? So. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if they were to remake it, I don't know who would who you could slot into the Michael Caine role, but I think Army Hammer would oh. be good in the oh, Christopher Reeve yeah. role. Very, yes. He, he's a better actor than people say, and the new film out at the moment, Call Me By Your Name, is proof of that. 
He was also good in Jay Edgar and, and other stuff. Um, Army Hammer would be a good cri- in the Christopher Reeve role. And just to annoy Patrick, I think Kim Basing a good play. The oh, neighbor. shut up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see Colin Firth playing the Michael Caine character. Yeah, yeah he'd I think be good. He- Oh, yeah, he'd be good especially too. yeah, take do what he did in uh, Kingsman, where yeah. he just flipped uh, on a switch. I think that would be a, a really wonderful. And yeah, armies that's a brilliant stroke. I Boy, just think it. Come on, uh, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there's, there's an, I, I'm not endorsing remakes by any standard because no. we have too many at the moment. On it's killing me as a film critic. But um, uh, does Death Trap stand the test of time? Uh, Bloody oath it does. It's very, very good. Loved it. Uh, it has its downfalls. I've gone through them. I don't have to bring them up again. But overall, it's a it's a movie that tragically not enough people either know about or have seen or they know only one thing of it, The Kiss. So it does stand the test of time. It's worth watching. Yeah, for me, this is one of my actually one of my favorite films from the 1980s. I probably haven't watched it enough, to be honest. But every time I watch it, I get something out of it, and I enjoy it more and more as the years go by. And I think this film actually gets better with age, and I wish there were more movies made like this and scripts written like this where we could have a little bit of creativity, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of comedy, action, drama, you name it, all rolled into one with some great acting and everything. And I think... As I said earlier, I think Michael Caine is absolutely perfect in this role. I'm pissed off that he never won an award for this role. Christopher Reeve did an extraordinary job with it. And, yeah, we talked about how Diane Cannon and the poor lady who played Helga were just miserable. But they didn't ruin the movie overall, and it does stand the test of time. And I, like you guys, want everybody to see this at some point. Well, I think what we're missing also in this is that today's movie is so action-oriented, CGI-heavy, and what we're missing today is valuable, beautiful dialogue. And I think if you were to just lay this story out on a page and look at the lines that are delivered, it it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be delivered in person. You just read it. You can picture these lines coming out of characters. And I think the dialogue alone in this is what is why this is such a heavyweight uh, of a script. Um, it has nothing to do with action. Murder is – you've seen so many of them. It's its not what is happening with a bullet or, a, or an axe. You see characters that are speaking and doing based on what is written on, on the page, and I think that comes across so strongly, and that's why this one is such a good movie. Totally well, agree. Daniel Day-Lewis, he knows how to deliver awesome dialogue. Give him this script and can imagine what he'd do with it. Yep. And yeah, um, Aaron Sorkin is a, yes. a magnificent screenwriter. Oh, that was um, the name I was thinking as you guys were talking about all this. Get yeah, exactly, Chad. Get him to spruce it up. How good would it be? Sorkin's yeah. on fire at the moment anyway with Molly's game. So get him in there. It, it, I actually might even endorse the remake if he's involved. Well, nobody in this day and age does better with speechifying i think they call it or a lot of dialogue than aaron sorkin so i agree let him have a crack at this one and see what he can do all right well that does it for our review of death trap if you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in purchasing or renting this film you can do so at our sister site cinematrove.com 
As always, please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section of our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you have any review requests for movies from the 1980s, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com. Until next time, I am Chad. I'm Bobby. I'm Patrick. And I'm Shane. And we have to get out of here, and you guys are invited. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only the theme music for lunchtime movie review fireworks is provided courtesy of alexander nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license all original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the mhn podcast network lunchtime movie review and fuzzy bunny slippers entertainment llc unless otherwise noted